right. you're trying to create a quote Christian culture unquote there is no Christian culture Christianity is the message of God's Son sacrificed on the cross for our salvation the the sort of outworkings of that reality is meant to be appropriated into every culture. You have right. to contextualize the gospel. Welcome back to the Sandhills Podcast. My name is Pastor John Daybeck, and I'm joined today by Dr. Cashin from CIU. Thank you for being on the show. Glad to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about uh, Eastern religions, Eastern spiritualism, the idea of that you know East and West uh, culture, mentality, worldview, mindset, uh, and how that impacts uh, evangelism, how we have conversations with people that are coming from a different worldview, different perspective. And we are excited because this kicks off a small segment that we'll be doing as we get close to the end of the season of uh, engaging other faith groups uh, with conversations around Jesus. And so this is an exciting one, and we're so pumped that uh, you get to be our first guest on this segment. Thank so, you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you—I uh, I have the benefit of having studied under you at CIU a uh, few you years You survived back. it, I guess. I did. <laughs> it was excellent. It was Those were the classes, honestly, the ICS classes, intercultural studies classes, were the ones that challenged me the most because I had to think outside of what I was used to thinking okay. in order to engage questions. Um, because we, we talked so much about, you know, other people's worldviews and perspectives and values well, and how do you God. engage them on their, on, in, in conversation that they'll understand and be and, and not just like, ah, I know more than you do. I've yeah, got a better yeah. perspective, but learning to distrust your gut feeling. Right. Exactly. And it, those were absolutely wonderful classes. So, how did you get into uh, both missions work that I, I, I know that you were a part of, and also education and, and taking the things that you've learned and imparting it uh, to others? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, I didn't start out too terribly well. Uh, I was raised in a non-Christian home, got deeply into drugs, uh, pretty, pretty messed up kid. Uh, and then I will say that I came to faith through the faithful prayers of a missionary to the Muslim world named Raymond Joyce, who... Hmm had never seen me, but heard I was getting expelled from a school. And he put me on his prayer list and he prayed wow. for me for five years. And then by pure, well, coincidence, you would say, but God's right. design, uh, we met uh, at a missions conference at Park Street Church. I can never forget his, his questions as he got my last name. He said, Cashin, were you ever in Beirut, Lebanon? Yes. <laughs> were you being expelled from a school there for using Drugs? Well, yes. How did you know that? Well, this is amazing, he says. I've been praying for you for the last five years. And wow. he opened up his prayer book, and there at the top of the list was my name. Wow. And God one-upped him. He was praying for me to come to faith. Uh, God said, I'm not only going to answer that prayer, I'm going to give you the opportunity to give his, his calling or give him his calling in ministry. Wow. And so from that point on, uh, he'd worked with Muslims for 40 years all over the world, Xinjiang, uh, he was a missionary there, he was a missionary in Pakistan, Bahrain, and then in Beirut at the same mm -hmm. time that, that I was there. So, yeah, it became very clear that, that my ministry was to share the gospel with Muslims. Uh, although in more recent years, I've studied a lot of other w religions as well. So mm -hmm. uh, there's sort of that other Eastern religion background. Wow. And then how did you get to CIU and, and teaching there? 
Well, probably the prayers of my wife. Uh, she knew more about CIU than I did. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a missionary in Iran for four years before we were married. And uh, she just constantly said to me, have you ever thought about studying at CIU? Or excuse me, not studying, but teaching at CIU. And my response was, that's down in South Carolina. It's too hot, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but the amazing thing was I got an invite to come down and teach an adjunct course mm -hmm. uh, back in the summer of 1999, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, then I came down for another summer, and a position became available, so I applied for it, and uh, the rest is history. Wow. I just finished 20 years of teaching at CIU. Congratulations. That is, Thank you. That is wonderful. Um, Man, just hearing that background, just seeing how God has been at work. Amen. In so many ways is just such a joy to hear. And so that is an incredible testimony of his faithfulness and how he how he loves mm. and how he pursues. So thank you for sharing that. That is that is absolutely wonderful. And and hearing your background in missions, uh, in the you know, the Asian context, whether that be the, the Middle East or the, the Far East, and talking about these questions, um, this is going to be a really fun conversation. I'm yeah. excited. Well, I worked for nine years in Bangladesh uh, mm -hmm. as a missionary, also worked among migrants uh, in Europe uh, for about six years in Sweden. Uh, so we were overseas for about 16 years, all told, and then came back to the States in 1995. So I've been homebound now for quite a while, but mm -hmm. I do have the fun of having three kids that are all outside of the U.S. until this past month when one of my sons moved back to South Carolina. And that's just been wonderful to have one family that's not a plane trip away. Right. <laughs> a lot they're, they're just in, Greenfield, in Greenville. <laughs> so it's just, you know two-hour drive instead of an eight-hour plane ride. Right, That's and, and so much cheaper. And yeah. just a couple oh, snacks goodness, on yeah. the road. <laughs> so what? one of the big things uh, that we hear a lot about, I think, in, in our culture, and, and especially now with uh, specifically kind of the young adult population we have in this country between, you know, 15 and 30, is you hear a lot about spiritualism mm -hmm. and a lot of connection, it seems, to mysticism. Mm -hmm. And it is very uh, based in Asian roots of, of Asian religion, spiritualism, and mysticism. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to just ask right off the bat, what is Eastern spiritualism and, and is it different from Eastern mysticism? Like, is, is there a difference between those two things or are they synonymous? Well, they can be related. Uh, obviously, when you're doing mystical practices, it's a kind of spiritualism. Uh, and I would say that this goes far beyond Asia. Uh, mm. All of the uh, folk religions of the world, uh, and that includes Islam, mm -hmm. uh, engage in different types of mystical practices for various reasons. Uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on the Sufis, the Muslim mystics of Bangladesh. And one of the things that you'll see is inherent in all spiritualist and mystical systems is that they're syncretistic. Mm. Uh, they tend to want to find ways, and by the way, in Christianity, there's a great temptation to do this. Mm. Uh, we talk about contextualization, and part of the struggle with that is making sure that I'm making the gospel understood in a culture rather than figuring out a way by syncretism to make the gospel acceptable in the culture. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. Okay, so every religion uh, has a tendency to pursue syncretistic views. I will say that the Eastern religions, and in those I would mean Buddhism, various sects of, of Hinduism, uh, even to some degree Sikhism, uh, 
all of them practice syncretistic ideas in order to make their faith um, more acceptable to the local population. Let me mm. just give you one example from sure. the 1960s. Uh, the Maharishi Mohashyogi came, uh, I think it was around 66, 65. That was when the Beatles were going to mm-hmm. India to learn under him. That's right. And at the time, he came preaching a religion, really. Um, and it was not ultimately well-received. It didn't stick around for very long. Mm. Uh, he then rebranded it and uh, called it science. And, and, of course, one of the favorite techniques of uh, spiritual syncretism is to appeal to a value that the culture accepts. Right. Uh, and so uh, there was this appeal that this is a scientific method uh, for relaxation. And if you look at the, the whole uh, marketing of yoga in America today, mm-hmm. uh, the spiritual side of it is downplayed as much as possible, and it's all about certain techniques that have to do with scientific relaxation methods and that sort of thing. Um, and some of those programs are pretty much secularized, uh, if you yeah. want to put it that way. But there are others that clearly have an agenda. And once they get you past right. the scientific part, they start to deal with a more obviously spiritual component. For instance, when you come to your yoga teacher and you're expected to make an offering mm. and maybe repeat certain phrases in, in Sanskrit, uh, then you realize you're dealing really with another religion that's found a different way, if you will, to market itself. Mm. That's fascinating because you see these things uh, have grown so much in the United States really within the past 40 years since the 80s, um, seeing a larger increase in acceptance of those things um, right around the time that they're changing those names like you're talking about and talking about how to enter into this culture and and talking about it. And you mentioned uh, in that briefly some of those major religions um, that have been around for thousands of years in Eastern Asia, what are so? Do they have similar core beliefs? Do they all have different core beliefs? What makes them different from one another, and what areas are they mostly found in? Well, uh, if you take all the religions together, there is hardly anything they agree on. Hmm. Uh, let's just take one example: Buddhism uh, is, by the way, the most syncretistic of all world religions because Buddhism really is only about one thing, and that is that you are not real you Mm. are there is no being there is no ontology in buddhism no no other religion has that kind of idea Uh, but you can't think of anything farther away from most of the other world religions than a religion that says there's no ultimate being there's no divine being there's no human being everything needs to be extinguished or nirban Hmm. Nir meaning without ban meaning fire so putting out the fire extinguishing the self is the Mm. whole point of Buddhism. Now, since that's just an idea with certain techniques associated with it, now, some of those techniques can be pretty advanced, especially if you're a monk, uh, but in reality, uh, you can believe pretty much anything else you want. Mm. Uh, So you'll find Buddhists who are animistic in their practices, and that's very, very common. Uh, You can find Buddhists who will say, well, you can be Christian and Buddhist at the same time, and even Christians who kind of agree with that idea. Hmm. So in Buddhism, you have a a highly syncretistic pattern where you're just trying to uh, assimilate to the local culture to make your most important idea acceptable. Mm -hmm. Probably the other end of the spectrum uh, would be Islam. You would think that uh, Muslims would be the least syncretistic because they're very, very... uh, 
opposed to shirk or anything else that would associate something with God, mm-hmm. which would pretty much negate all the Eastern religions right. and, and Christianity for that reason. Um, and yet, the human heart desires relationship, desires contact with God. Now, because Islam denies the possibility of that, and Daud Rahbar in his book, uh, God of Justice, very, uh, he's a Muslim, was a Muslim fellow, he's deceased now, showed very clearly that uh, the God of Islam is a God of pure legalism. Mm. The only thing you can know about God is his law. And Ismail Faruqi said the same thing. Uh, you cannot know God, you cannot experience God, you cannot have a personal relationship with God. All you can know about God is his law. Mm. But the fact of the matter, human beings are created in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, the simplest aspect of that is that we're made for relationship with God. We're made to know God. We are made to experience God. We were made to have a personal relationship with God. So what happens when Muslims grapple with that idea? They want contact with God, but Orthodox Islam denies them that possibility. Hmm. Well, they would then run to animistic practices uh, that relate to spiritualism. Uh, The Sufis are are absolutely in that category. And these groups also are syncretistic. For instance, in Bangladesh, this is going to blow your mind, but I ran into Sufi groups that were still worshiping Hindu deities. Are you kidding? Now, they're rapidly being exterminated uh, because reform movements in Islam, we can get Islam popularized through syncretism, but we Mm -hmm. ultimately have to get rid of these syncretistic elements and go back to the true sunnah of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the reality is that uh, syncretism uh, comes into Muslim preaching as well. I mean, I've watched Muslim websites here in America talking about, and and the fellow sounds everything like a Baptist preacher, Mm. saying that you can have a personal relationship with God through Islam. Now, Orthodox Muslims would say that's associating something with God, which is the ultimate sin. That's shirk. (laughs) You should be executed for shirk. Mm. But they're doing that because the Americans don't know the difference. Right. And once they get inside of Islam, then perhaps gradually we'll clean them up and make them better Muslims. And that's what Ismail Faruqi was doing when he spoke on that. He did that at a conference in Cairo with 500 Western converts to Islam. Wow. Now, why would his main message be, you cannot know, you cannot experience, you cannot have a personal relationship with God? Because all of these people came from a Christian background and believed in an intimate relationship with God. And he had to set them straight on that. He had to clean up their thinking uh, in that regard. But the human heart is what it is. Hmm. And I think that the present movement of violence in Islam, which is much focused on Muslims who don't believe the right way. You know, what does ISIS do? What does Al-Qaeda do? What does the Taliban do? They kill Muslims who have syncretistic ideas or who aren't totally sold out to the Sharia, to the law of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that's doing is actually pushing, pushing Muslims out of Islam in a way that we've never seen before. Mm. Uh, uh, we've just been through doing a research project on Iranians coming to Christ. And even a secular agency like the University of Utrecht has mentioned that between 750,000 and 1 million Iranian Muslims have become Christians over the last 10 to 15 years. 
That is incredible. So actually, I look upon the Muslim legalists who are right. What they're seeing is the true Islam. Right. They're also proto-evangelists. Huh. They're preparing the way for the message of the gospel. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm on a little bit of a no, rabbit trail there, but I, I hope that would be helpful. That is, because I mean, we, we get into this question of the difference, you know, you hear about Western and Eastern thought processes and Western and Eastern culture and Western and Eastern worldview what is the difference like what does that mean because you know on the one hand you you have you know the way that we would want to relate to god is very different than how you know you're raised in a culture that thinks about god in one way mm. and then you're raised in a culture that thinks about god in a different way how do those things work together what, what's the difference between eastern and western and eastern thought kind of on a base yeah. level well that that difference is um much bigger than just what the orthodoxy of the, the religion teaches. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to do with all kinds of assumptions of worldview. Let me just give you one example. Um, if you're Chinese, even if you're not religious, you are very collectively oriented. You are right. oriented towards the nation as a whole, and you are expected to subsume your personal uh, views or desires to that which the society desires. Mm -hmm. uh, America is hyper-individualistic in that sense, right. and we see that in the polarization going on in our society today. We don't know how to work together anymore. Uh, we have almost completely lost any sense of a collective identity as Americans. Right. Uh, so uh, that contrast between the individualist and the collectivist Another has to do, and this is not found in American culture much anymore, is the difference between uh, clean and unclean. Mm. You know, in America, when I was a kid, if you said a four-letter word, you got your mouth washed out with soap, right. which is a way of indicating clean versus unclean. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, almost any kid who's had that done to them will never say another four-letter <laughs> word as long as they live. And that's true of me. And it, that was before I was a Christian. That was just <laughs> inculcated in me. This is filthiness. Now, we don't have that anymore. Western culture has almost, uh, other than in the area of biological uncleanness, uh, we, we don't even think of spiritual uncleanness. Right. Muslim world is thoroughly focused on uh, the idea of cleanness. You have to do your wudu. You need to wash yourself five mm -hmm. times a day before you can uh, pray to God. Uh, if you've had sexual intercourse, uh, the next morning before you can say your prayers, you have to take a full shower because you are unclean, uh, you're mm. junub, as they would say. So other cultures have very different ideas about collective versus individual, clean versus unclean, shame versus honor. Mm. Uh, we talk about honor killings that sometimes take place. This has to do with the fact that you have disgraced my family mm -hmm. by your behavior. And so a Muslim who becomes a Christian has disgraced the family, and the potential for that person to be murdered in many Muslim countries is a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. And if the Taliban takes over in Afghanistan, I know of Muslim, or I should say uh, Afghani believers from Muslim backgrounds, they will be executed. Mm -hmm. uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. All the, all the uh, converts that they've caught, the Taliban has laid their hands on, they've all been killed. Mm. So you've got shame, honor, uh, and obviously very different ideas uh, that relate to that about what, uh, what constitutes purity, what constitutes honor, uh, what constitutes... And of course, Christian culture, Western culture is very much uh, guilt versus innocence oriented. 
And uh, I have some theological disagreements with my friends in the Bible college who like to say, oh my goodness, it's all about shame versus guilt. It's the penal substitutionary theory. And I want to say, well, look at the places in the Bible that says something different. Mm. Uh, And there are plenty of them. Uh, I find at least seven different paradigms for salvation uh, in the scriptures. Uh, And obviously, vicarious atonement is at the core of that, but vicarious atonement relates to, but you were washed, but you were cleansed Mm. through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There there are plenty of passages that show that side. The Bible addresses all cultures without defining the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at Muhammad, uh, he will teach you uh, how to brush your teeth. He will teach you how to go to the bathroom. He will teach you literally every imaginable thing uh, about social structure and life. If you look at Jesus and you're looking for something that is like that, you'll be utterly frustrated. Hmm. Where does Jesus teach us about the form of baptism? Nowhere. Yeah. In fact, the New Testament does not tell you how to do baptism. That's why we have these arguments. Can we do child baptism or does it have to be adult baptism? Do we have to immerse them in the water or do we just pour water over their heads or we just sprinkle them? And you know what? The Bible is just not clear. And Mm. our problem with our theological denominations is we try to make it absolutely clear. You're trying to create a, quote, Christian culture, unquote. There is no Christian culture. Christianity is the message of God's Son sacrificed on the cross for our salvation. The, The sort of outworkings of that reality is meant to be appropriated into every culture. You have to contextualize the gospel. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. You've got to be able to enter those cultures unoffensively. And in fact, what does Genesis 11 teach us? That God himself is the author of ethno-linguistic cultural diversity. So you must respect that. Uh, And that one of the major differences between Christianity and all the other world religions is all of them tend to bring a culture with them. Mm. Islam is is a God culture. Uh, Hinduism is a God culture. Uh, Buddhism is a no-God culture. Right. Uh, Christianity has tried at times to create a quote-unquote Christian culture, but most of those things have become oppressive Mm -hmm. and have led to the failure of Christianity. If you look at Europe today with regard to the the Christian faith, it's a burned-over continent. I mean, the the number of people that are actual believers is, generally speaking, less than 1% of the population. And that's Mm. because we're associated with all the medieval practices, what's going on in the church, you know, even in the Catholic Church, this whole pedophilic priest thing. Mm -hmm. uh, All of that has just been devastating uh, to the Christian church. I I really want to get back to a Christianity that is not culture-bound, at Mm. least not in the sense of me imposing my culture on anybody else. That's something that I've heard a lot of recently, again, with the young adult population, um, you know, in our community is the idea of, oh, well, I thought when I became, if I become a Christian, I have to become a conservative. And they were linking those two things together. And and it's that idea, just like you're saying, that it's not, you have to convert to Christianity and conservatism. It's you surrender your life to Christ. And can I, can I give you a very poignant example? Please. Uh, I have a friend who I prayed for for 13 years to come to faith, and he and his wife both came to faith. We were visiting with them down on Cape Cod this past summer. And uh, he's part of a church where the majority of the members think that vaccination uh, is the mark of the beast, Mm. and they're refusing to be vaccinated. 
Now, my friend and his wife are, are fairly liberal in regard to that. I, I, I don't really <laughs> see that in the liberal conservative spectrum. But uh, the fact of the matter is, when they talked about getting vaccinated, they just got incredible pushback. And by the way, I got the same thing mm. uh, in my church. I just said kind of mildly, because I'd had COVID, and I got it two weeks after open-heart surgery. So it's like, hey, my let's goodness. get one of my students died of it. So let's get vaccinated. Yeah. Wow, the pushback I got. Mm. Unbelievable. I'm sorry, I'm being a little political here, no, but right. do we really want smallpox back? Mm. Do we really want polio back? Mm. I mean, the reality is that we don't have those things because we all get vaccinated. We used to have a collective culture where everybody kind of understood these are good things to do. Yeah. And it's not, there's no conspiracy here. The government isn't trying to inject us with the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get rid of things that cripple children and things that ki- kill people in large numbers. Right. Uh, and I think it, it's an, uh, not only the way that a syncretistic individualism has come into the church, mm-hmm. we've lost our sense of collective values, mm-hmm. but also that we're making things a part of Christianity that were never meant to be a part of Christianity. Right. Uh, Linking so, them at the uh, hip, yeah. When you talk about uh, conservative versus liberal, boy, I'm a scatterbrain in that regard because there is, you know, vaccination, 100% for it. Biblical uh, authority, 100% for it, mm-hmm. uh, against the homosexual agenda. I'm sorry, the Bible is clearly negative to the homosexual agenda. So that mm-hmm. makes me, and, and of course, I'm also labeled as an Islamophobe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, you know, that's a given, because you're no longer allowed to criticize that religion. Right. Right? That's what that means. You're, that, that is protected territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, like saying that this is, has nothing to do with Islam. It's right. a little bit like saying pedophilic priests have nothing to do with the Catholic Church. Mm. And I'm not saying that because I'm downing Catholics. Yeah. But it was a problem, and mm. it came to the fore, and now it's being reformed. How can you reform a religion that you can't criticize? Mm. And that's one of the big things that we talked about in the ICS classes. When you look at uh, that, that Islam uh, came about around 400, 500 years after Christianity. 600, actually. Yeah, 600. So you get, you get into that uh, time frame, and you subtract, you know, around 600 years from us today, and you they're almost in the same time frame of a Reformation that we went through in the 1500s. That's a, that's a good thought. I haven't thought of that. You know? But, and, uh, yeah, they, they are grappling with how do we change to make our faith fit the 21st century. And when you see the things that happened in Europe during the Reformation, the oh, wars, yeah. the killings... Oh, my goodness. It, One, what, I think it was John Calvin or somebody in that group, Zwingli maybe, uh, who had a Bible study with a number of young men in it, I don't know, eight or ten young men. By the mm-hmm. end of his life, he had executed all of them. Oh, my gosh. And you think... Wow, this is Christianity, right? This is That's Jesus? part of the history, and so and so when you get to these moments, and uh, it seems like uh, Islam in general is in one of these moments mm. where they're thinking, okay, what happens next? What do we do? How do we grow mm-hmm. and and continue as a culture? And so as we get into that conversation, you know, we started with you know what's the difference between Eastern, Western, and Eastern thought, and we got into that you know, political conversation because you see that the tying together of collectivism and if the church loses its identity that we are one body, mm-hmm. then we're going to start looking for a body somewhere else yeah, in a community yeah. somewhere else. And that, that seems to be why we've attached to that. And so my next question for that was, well, how did that, how does that difference impact evangelism? Mm. And you see the idea that, you know, as we talked about it, that, that idea of community Mm-hmm. impacts evangelism not just in western or eastern but in both because communities 
they're fighting for community yeah. in both aspects. Well, I think the thing that is most uh, attractive in Islam, uh, to a lesser degree in some of the uh, Eastern religions, is the fact that they have a very strong community concept. Uh, and as I look at all of the Westerners who've converted to Islam, and I've uh, studied the studies on Hispanics who become uh, Muslim, uh, mm -hmm. African Americans who become Muslim, uh, it's almost always the community aspect that attracts them. Mm. And it's a little bit like uh, saying, I like to quote, you know, if the sheep come bleeding to my door, I'm not at fault for feeding them. Mm. And uh, these community-oriented cultures and religions uh, have a real attraction to young people if you're looking for community. Now, there's a dark side to that as well. I will say that most of the converts to Islam that I've run into over the last 40 years, 45 years, most of them eventually left Islam mm. uh, because they discovered the intolerance, they discovered the inability to reform views of women, uh, views of apostasy, um, there have been a couple of reform movements within Islam. I'll just mention one of them since you're talking about it's time for reform. Mm. Uh, the Ahmadiyya movement uh, arose in the 19th century as an attempt to reform Islam. And one of the things that they argued against was, first of all, there should be no execution of apostates. You know, we need to get away from that. Um, some of the issues regarding women they wanted to get rid of. And in order to do that, to have the authority to do that, they kind of had to say that this guy, Ghulam Mirza Ahmed, who came later, was kind of like completing hmm. what, what Muhammad had said to allow for a reform. Uh, the Ahmadiyyas have been declared to be non-Muslims by every single Sunni and Shiite council on earth hmm. because you can't get rid of the law of apostasy. Right. In other words, a Muslim who becomes a Christian or a Muslim who leaves Islam should be executed. Uh, that has to change. Mm -hmm. Freedom of religion means, and by the way, Muslims are changing in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, the World uh, Evangelical Alliance has recently signed a paper with the uh, Nadatul Islam in Indonesia, where they have said both sides have the right to win converts from the other side. Wow, that's huge. And yeah, that is huge. That's massive. And, and it's saying basically a lot of Muslims are recognizing that if we insist on staying in the sixth century, we're going to lose our youth. Mm. Uh, Christianity is experiencing that now. Uh, mm -hmm. We're losing our youth. And, and it's partly because we're seen either as irrelevant or judgmental or, well, frankly, not building community. Mm -hmm. So every church needs to look at their, you know, body aspect. It's so simple. Mm. You know, we don't have... And let me just tell you one quick thing out of yeah. my research with Iranian, um, Iranians who become Christians. This came out in my research, and I wasn't expecting it, where several of my interviewees said, the thing that really blew my mind when I came to the church was the team emphasis. Mm. In other words, you don't, in Islam, you have one top dog uh, who rules over a pyramid of um, patronization. And that top dog is always going to look at rising new leaders as a potential threat and play whack-a-mole with them. Mm. Uh, these, uh, primarily women who become uh, Christians, said, I came into the church, or I came into uh, Western education, and there was this team emphasis, where people have different roles, but nobody is lording it over anybody else. Mm. You know, the pastor is uh, under the authority of the Board of Elders. 
uh, anyone on the board of elders who does something of great sin, he's accountable to the whole congregation. Uh, in other words, we're a team. We're mm-hmm. not. Uh, it's not a one-man show, or it shouldn't be. Right. Unfortunately, in a lot of churches, the pastor is a one-man show, but that's right. not how it should be. And these ladies were saying, this is what attracted us to the gospel. So community and team leadership is such a crucial aspect. Why did Jesus train 13 men and leave the fate and future of Christianity in the hands of a team of people? He didn't have Mm. one disciple that he did all the training of and said, now you become the new emperor. Right. But 13, or excuse me, 12 different individuals who would carry the gospel forward. Yeah, absolutely. That is a fascinating concept because we, we look at these ideas then of how do we bring that idea of compatibility mm. of the Christian mindset into the conversations with people that come from a different worldview perspective. And so my, my next question is, you know, what is the Christian, is Christianity compatible, compatible with the Eastern worldview and how far back can we trace Christians going into uh, Eastern Asia to, to seek that answer and to see what happens. Well, we know for sure that Christians came to India by the end of the first and, and uh, certainly by the uh, mid-second century. I mm-hmm. mean, they were there. Uh, there was a Christian church and still is down in South India. Uh, we know that Christianity came to uh, Tibet by the fifth century. Uh, it entered into China by the seventh century under a, a missionary monk by the name of Alupan. Uh, we have the documents, uh, the translations of works that were done from that period. Now, uh, that movement eventually didn't completely die out, but it became much smaller due to the fact that it became so syncretistic that people lost track of who Jesus was. Mm. Uh, and I have a paper, actually, on, on that subject. So, yeah, Christianity has a long history in the East, and for many centuries it was primarily an Eastern religion, not a Western one. Yeah. But it became cut off in the Western world, largely through the conquests of Islam, and uh, kind of got this idea that Western culture is Christianity, mm. uh, which it isn't. Right. And what's exciting about the 21st century is that uh, the vast majority of Christians today are in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Uh, Christianity's center in Europe and later North America has now shifted to the global south. And that means a whole new set of theological uh, discourses are taking place. Right. So I think when we think about ministry, how do we bring this into an evangelistic emphasis? Part of our task is always to figure out where the other person is at. If you look at Acts chapter 17 and uh, Paul's approach uh, to the Stoics and the Epicureans, it's very clear that he knows their worldview backwards and forwards. He can Mm. quote their their poets, not merely in terms of just doing a light-hearted kind of touch on their culture, mm-hmm. but dealing with a deeper problem. Just to give you an example, what is often spoken of as a word of uh, judgment as being necessary to uh, sharing the gospel is when Paul says there is a judgment coming through the man that God has appointed. Mm. And he's, of course, referring to Jesus here. So many right. people have taken that, oh, you've got to talk about hell if you're going to share the gospel. Actually, that's not the point at all. The point is he's addressing the Stoics who were cyclic pantheists, a lot like Hindus, mm. who thought that the, the curse of, of uh, life is the curse of reincarnation. You've got to right. come back, you've got to come back, you've got to come back. And Paul preaches good news. He said, no, you're not going to come back. Mm. 
So that is, he understands their worldview, and he speaks in a way that appeals to their worldview. Mm. Uh, As Christians, I think we're called to respect people's worldview in the same way. This is why I have a book called uh, The Seven Essential Questions of Life, Mm. uh, where I basically give people seven key questions, some ontological, some dealing with epistemology, that is truth, and some dealing with axiology, that is ethics, and figuring out where your people are at. And I find in our day and age, if you ask good questions, people, and you listen, not judgmentally, just trying Mm. to understand them, they will often ask you back, well, how do you answer these questions? Mm. Uh, And I think Christians are going to increasingly have to get used to the idea that we're dealing with people with many, many different worldviews. And any church today is likely to, you know, bump into people from very different backgrounds. There are six, there are two Sikh temples here. Uh, we often pronounce that word Sikhs, but that's not the correct pronunciation. Anyway, we have two of their temples here in Colombia. We have five mosques mm-hmm. uh, in Colombia. We have several Hindu temples in uh, Colombia. So, and frankly, every single uh, motel and hotel that's owned by a Gujarati here in Colombia has a Hindu temple in one of the rooms. Really? And it wow. didn't. I, f- I found that out as I was talking with some some Hindu friends. So uh, you are going to run into this. It's, mm. it's everywhere. Uh, so as Christians, we need to think through, first of all, how do I ask good questions? Mm. And then secondly, how do I relate the gospel? Paul did that in Acts 17, and I think that's a paradigm that the church, that the, that the gospel, that the scriptures set up for us and say, you need to be no less diligent. Mm. Absolutely. And for our listeners and watchers, we are going to have the link uh, to the seven essential questions uh, in the description of this podcast, I have read it, and it is phenomenal, and it is very helpful in approaching conversations, especially with people that come from a different worldview or a different religion. Uh, and that was actually going to be my next question: was how should people have conversations today with with individuals that come from these backgrounds, and and what are things that are good to keep in mind? Yeah, and those seven essential questions really hit the nail on the head when you want to enter into a conversation like that. Cause I think that's yeah. one of the key things is that you're not going into it thinking you're going to, you're going to change today, but you should yeah. go into it and we're going to have a conversation today, a real conversation. Yeah. Well, part of the problem is we've been used to um, methodization of evangelism. Uh, give me this method, give me that method. And methods are culture bound and they're time bound. Mm-hmm. And as culture changes over time, they become less and less relevant. They speak less and less to how people think. Just uh, if you look at something like the four laws, which I've used many times, and I've even led people to Christ with the four laws a a long time ago, Mm. uh, there are assumptions that underlie the four laws that uh, are clear. Uh, You you know, the idea that Scripture is authoritative. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's assumed in the four spiritual laws. Uh, But that's not assumed by the modern generation. Right. Uh, it has to be demonstrated in some senses. Hmm. Uh, so I think uh, what I've tried to come up with here is a non-method method. It's really a method that says, let's figure out where they're at first. Hmm. Uh, and I think if you look at most people doing evangelism today, even Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, they have much more dialogical approaches uh, to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I still fall back on the four laws when it's just a straightforward you know, gospel presentation, but I usually don't get to that point uh, until we've really uh, established that this person sees their need for Jesus. Right. 
So that's a fun thing to do. Uh, when you get to the point of, uh, I had this one girl who came to faith, ask me, uh, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I said, well, I just did a little diagram, same one from the four laws of a throne. And I said, who's mm-hmm. on the throne of your life? And she said, I am. Okay, I said, if you want to become a Christian, Jesus has got to be on the throne of your life. Mm. So there's still connections that you yeah. bring in. Uh, and she later became Christian, uh, a Christian that weekend, actually, wow. at a church. She went and visited a church here. I was a little upset that I didn't get to do that. But anyway, <laughs> hey, I don't care. They, they get to meet the Lord and go wherever the Lord leads them. All right, absolutely. This has been a fantastic conversation uh, of entering into uh, thinking through evangelism in a new perspective uh, mm. versus, I think, what many of us kind of grew up with is, you know, either you've heard someone on a soapbox on the side of the street and been like, well, I don't know if I can do that. And then you've seen Billy Graham and you're like, I don't know if I could do that either. Yeah. And so this is a really good way to start thinking through evangelism. And you mentioned earlier um, at the very beginning of the podcast and and working in refugee camps or in displacement Mm. camps, we're in a really incredible time in history where for so long uh, evangelists have had trouble getting to the East but now the East is coming to us in a yeah. lot of ways. And, and that becomes a major theme of when you meet people, business uh, owners like you talked about, uh, who are in the community and, and are plugging in to their new home. Let's have good conversations with them with that don't include the us versus them mentality. Uh, yeah. But the, I want to honor and respect your culture and worldview and show you that I understand it and I've done my research yeah. and want to honor you and have this conversation. Because yeah. um, from that place, I think there'll be some incredible things for kingdom work. Well, you know, one of the great evangelists of the 1960s and early 70s was a guy named Paul Little. Um, and uh, he shared in his book, one of the chapters in his book on this, it's out of print now, but uh, one of the chapters was Evangelism of the Ears. Mm which was the ability to listen to other people. Mm. And uh, so this is nothing new. Right. Uh, Paul practiced it in the first century. Uh, but now that we are a very multicultural society, we have to learn that, that technique. And, and I do believe that Jesus is relevant for every culture and every religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need Jesus. Why do Muslims need Jesus? Well, Sharia cannot save you. Mm. The law cannot save you. The law can only show you your sin. That's exactly what get, Paul says in Galatians. Yeah. How can <laughs> Same you? Same yeah. thing. Oh, absolutely. And I've had that conversation with many Muslims. Mm-hmm. So how do you get cleansed from sin? How do you become acceptable to God? It's not through the works of the law. Mm. It's through faith in the person, the sacrifice that God has made to pay the price of your sins. And that's Jesus. He's the only way of salvation. Absolutely. So as we wrap up, uh, I've got two final questions for you. Uh, as we close out this podcast, if you could say... One thing to every person wanting to evangelize uh, to kind of the the Eastern worldview, um, I'll break it up like this. If you could say one thing to everyone who's wanting to evangelize uh, to the Muslim community, and then one thing to people who are wanting to evangelize to the kind of spiritualism community, Mm. what's one thing that you would say to them? Well, you know, in the case of Muslims, my usual response is to say, would you like to study the Bible with me? Mm. I know that's quite direct, Yeah. Uh, but Muslims appreciate people being direct. Mm. And usually you get one of two answers. They'll either say yes, and believe me, an increasing number of Muslims do that because they're questioning their faith at this point. Mm. But for those who say, no, I can't, uh, it's corrupted, it's not God's word anymore, I don't want to read a book, I won't want to be made unclean by such a book. Mm-hmm. 
Well, then I open to the Quran, chapter 10, verse 90, 94, that says, uh, basically, it tells Muslims to read the Bible. Hmm. And then uh, same chapter, verse 64, says, uh, this is the good news. No change can there be in the words of Allah. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean? What kind of an Allah is it who can't protect his own word? Mm. Uh, and using that argument, I actually started Bible studies in 17 mosques. Wow. Now, that, that approach in a mosque doesn't work so well, mm-hmm. uh, simply because the leaders of the community have the most to lose by becoming followers of Jesus. So the numbers mm-hmm. that are willing to make that kind of crossover, I've had one guy do it once in Kazan, Russia. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't affect, it doesn't work very well. Okay. So now my basic approach is, do I run into a Muslim friend? One of the first things I'll ask him if I get the opportunity is, would you like to study the Bible with me? Mm. So that's my approach for Muslims. When it comes to Hindus, um, my big question is, how do you... Uh, get away from reincarnation, uh, you know, that's a curse, that's a burden. How do you escape from that? You're really asking them, how do you get salvation? Uh, and then getting their responses, what do they need to do? How, what sort of person do they have to be? Mm-hmm. All religions eventually break down to some form of legalism, something you've got to do to climb out of the hole, to get out of the cesspool, to get closer to God. Mm-hmm. And the Christian message is revolutionary. It says you can't get to God by that means. Mm. You have to go through the means that he has provided. It's Jesus who goes down into the sewer and pushes you up mm. out of the sewer. Uh, and that is kind of an approach that you may do in different ways with different religions. But keep in mind, all religions, except for the gospel— are based on keeping the law. Mm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on to the show and, and, and sharing uh, your experiences and wisdom in, in this regard. I think this is going to be very beneficial to, to many of our viewers. And what's really cool is information is traveling in a way that we've never seen in history before. And I was looking very at true. our demographics the other day, and we've got, I think we've got six people listening in Europe consecutively mm. a few in italy a couple in england one in czech the czech republic yeah and it's, it's just amazing to see how information is spreading yeah. and so yeah. uh, i think this will be a blessing and i thank you for well, being on the show thank you for letting me be on the show just to talk about how things spread uh, i have a book on uh, islam called muhammad and the people of the book and that book has now circulated to just about every single muslim country uh, wow. got, uh actually at this point thousands of hits uh, from Muslim countries where they've imported the book. It's available on online. And uh, I don't know what conversations are going on with that, but I'd be very interested to eavesdrop if I could. Absolutely. And uh, for our viewers and listeners, again, that'll those two books, Seven Essential Questions and Muhammad and the People of the Book, are going to be in the description found below. Dr. Cashin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate uh, you uh, listening uh, every week. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Uh, We only do this so that it can be a benefit uh, to your ability to evangelize to people wherever the Lord has you. And if you're interested in more about uh, what Sandhills Church, uh, where we're at right now, is all about, feel free to tune in online live or come in person any Sunday at 930 or 11. Have a great week.